The 1980s cult classic The Blues Brothers tells the story of two brothers, one of whom is an ex-con who has become convinced that they are on a mission from God in order to save the orphanage that they grew up in. Why anyone would believe two men who refer to their school's nun as the Penguin were sent by God is a question that is never answered within the film. Are two blues musicians, one who orders plain white toast and the other four fried chickens, the oddest choice that God could have made? No. For throughout Christian theology, God has made terrifically odd choices for who represents him on earth. Take three of the most recognizable biblical heroes. Jesus was conceived out of wedlock through a reported immaculate conception at a time when that shame would have carried near-mandatory ostracization from mainstream society. The King of Kings grew up the poor son of a carpenter rather than the seed of an established emperor. Noah was one man working to build an ark to save multiple species from God's desire to start anew. God didn't choose someone who already had the necessary ship, or even someone who had an abundance of already chopped wood. Likewise, David, who first slays Goliath and later becomes king of the Israelites, is chosen because of the quality of his heart. But he was the runt of his family, overlooked by all who knew him. Our tale's heroine is an equally odd choice. Joan was a teenage girl, illiterate and from a poor sheep-herding family in rural France. Her life was one that was totally devoid of military training, and she arrived on the scene dressed in boys' clothing, a sin at the time. At first, second, and third glance, she seems to be the oddest choice that God could have made to lead the French to military victory during the Hundred Years' War. But God is said to work in mysterious ways. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the second in a four-part series regarding the warrior Joan of Arc. Episode 2, We're on a Mission from God. Let's start with a very quick recap of where we are at this point in the story. The Hundred Years' War has been ongoing in France since 1337 when the English king asserted his hereditary rights over the French mainland. John, the Duke of Burgundy, had begun a fight to the death with an influential rival family known as the Armanacs. John the Fearless drew first blood through the audacious murder of Louis of Orleans. But Charles the Dauphin, or Prince of France, got the last laugh after luring John into a trap through false peace negotiations. The death of John resulted in his son Philip bringing the Burgundies into an alliance with the English king Henry V. Philip, who was in possession of the royal family, handed the king and queen of France over to the enemy as part of the Treaty of Troyes, 
through which King Henry added large swaths of France to his expansive list of territories. Also as part of the agreement, he married a daughter of the French royal line and sired his heir to the throne, a boy of mixed French and English royal descent. The baby boy was named Henry after his father, destined to rule over two of the most powerful kingdoms in world history. It's a pretty simple and concise story, which is something that the Christian God isn't particularly known for. After all, rather than a simple and consistent message of love thy neighbor, the Christian Bible is split into two testaments, three if the Church of Latter-day Saints proves to be the correct interpretation. Those dual testaments include hundreds of pages of occasionally contradictory thoughts. But let's assume for this episode that the Christian deity exists. That assumption helps to put us into the frame of mind of the individuals living in France in 1422. The vast majority of French and Englishmen were devout believers who constantly looked for signs that they remained on the path that God desired for them. The English had made their claims for the throne based upon lineage. And that lineage was important for a society that maintained a belief in the divine right of kings, a philosophy that locked in a western caste system that upheld the economic model of feudalism. The English won those claims through force of arms, and by successfully playing two bitter rivals against each other. There was only one holdout preventing permanence in what had become known as English France. Charles the Dolphin the leader of Armanac, France. It was here that those who sought out God's hand in the Armanac story found it favoring them for the first time. Two weeks after his marriage to the French princess Catherine, Henry returned to overseeing his slow but steady military conquest in France. Historian Helen Castor details the string of English victories in 1421 writing that, a week later, Sens had fallen. A fortnight after that, Henry's army stormed into Monterey Fault Young. There, the mutilated body of John the Fearless was exhumed from its shallow grave in the parish church and reverently laid with salt and spices in a lead coffin for its journey back to the dead duke's capital at Dijon. Then the English and Burgundy troops marched northwest to the fortified walls of Maloon, a key staging post in the campaign to sweep the Armanacs out of the region immediately to the south of Burgundine, Paris. But the soldiers of the Armanac garrison dug in their heels, and by the middle of July it was clear that Milun would not be so easily taken. Now, if ever, the Armanac cause needed an inspirational military leader to come to the town's rescue and put a stop to the English king's inexorable advance and the 17-year-old Dolphin knew just what to do. He ordered himself two new suits of gilded armor, mustered an army of 15,000 men, and put his cousin, the Count of Virtus, at the head of it. That's right, we still aren't at the point where Joan will rescue the French. God apparently wanted Charles to first save himself. Unlike David, Noah, or Jesus, however, it wasn't a task that the Dolphin was up to. 
King Henry ordered his opponent, the Dauphin, to appear on January 6 before a commission to face charges related to the death of John, the Duke of Burgundy. Charles wisely decided not to attend, and was sentenced in absentia to banishment from France and the forfeiture of any legitimate claim to the kingdom. Charles responded by reaching out to the Scots, a people who needed little urging to pick up arms against the English. Thousands answered the French call, but there was one problem with the plan, for the English had held the Scottish King James I as their prisoner for the past 14 years. Thus, Henry countered the infusion of six to 7,000 Scottish troops fighting for the French with a declaration of war by the Scottish King on his behalf. Proving that the Scots weren't very good at following authority figures, the soldiers on the French side carried on against their king's wishes and proved the difference, with the men fighting under John Stuart's banner claiming multiple victories within English-held Normandy. Charles rushed north to bask in his sudden good fortune. It was at this point that we serve as witness to the Dauphin's willingness to discern God's will in all things that benefited him. Stuart, the Scotsman who refused to obey his lawful king, was proclaimed the savior of France by Charles. Additionally, he was granted the title of Constable of the Kingdom, the highest military post possible, and a rank above every other Frenchman besides the Dauphin himself. It is not uncommon for religious men and women to see signs of God all around them. Charles, throughout the Hundred Years' War, attended daily Mass, two to three times per day. It's logical to assume that deeply religious individuals are more likely to encounter signs of God. But an article authored by 11 experts in social psychology published by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS, disagrees. The authors looked at four studies that utilized more than 2,000 participants selected from different regions and religions of the world. Some of the remarkable findings include the fact that non-religious people are just as likely to encounter realistic visions of God as well as the fact that these visions cannot be scientifically explained by any known mental illness. The authors immediately remind their readers that these visions, whether real or not, have changed the course of history. They cite Augustine, a man who prior to his conversion had believed that he was a god himself. He converted to Christianity after experiencing a sign in the sky. They also point to Martin Luther King Jr.'s recollection of a voice from God urging him to move forward with resolve on the eve of the civil rights movement's Montgomery bus boycotts. The PNAS paper tells us that there are two factors that determine our ability to receive otherworldly signs, permeability and absorption. Those of us with a permeable mind believe that intuitions, wishes, or curses can come true. We are those who wish upon a star and then proceed to buy a lottery ticket and plan how we are going to spend our winnings. Permeable minds believe that strong emotions can linger in a room, producing either good vibes or bad juju that can affect others. 
To put it another way, the authors point out that if you believe that some can read minds, and thus you walk around with a tinfoil hat on, then you have a permeable mind. The second factor is absorption, which is described as the extent that individuals are able to lose themselves in sensory experiences. These are the individuals who are so caught up in music that they fail to notice everything else that is occurring around them. They jump from experience to experience as if they were still a child, absorbed in the moment. The conclusion of the authors is that porosity and absorption were strong predictors of spiritual presence events, regardless of people's participation in a particular religion or their living in a particular location and regardless of how we assess these relationships. The authors report that their findings were robust, the highest form of confidence within the scientific community. Despite his faithfulness, the teenage dolphin was never able to achieve a spiritual encounter for himself. This left him continually looking for signs that were favorable to the predetermined conclusion that he was working under, namely that he was supposed to get his birthright back. It also meant that quite a few of his declarations of God's intent turned out to be false. The importance of this is twofold. First, French culture at this time believed in and was actively looking for signs from God. And secondly, that the scientific community doesn't automatically dismiss the idea of a visitation or message from the beyond. The English didn't look at the arrival and victory of the Scots as anything more than a military defeat. But it was a setback, and the failure in the field brought Normandy back to the forefront of Henry's attention, who immediately left his new French wife to finally end the Dauphin's futile resistance. Or at least, that is what he intended in June of 1422. On July 4th, he arrived in Paris and camped with his men due to what he claimed was sickness among his troops. The sudden appearance of the English king caused Charles to immediately lose his nerve and abandon his newly won lands in the north. The Scot mercenaries held on as long as they could, but the Armanacs were grasping at straws at this point and propping up their dismal approval ratings with public proclamations by Jean de Gand, a supposed holy hermit who had received a vision sent from heaven that indicated that Charles would someday wear the crown of France and father an heir to the throne. The vision apparently was sequential, as the second part of the prophecy was put into motion in 1422, when his wife announced that she was pregnant. The path to the crown, though, was thoroughly blocked by Henry, and I mean literally, as the French were a bit superstitious or religious about what it took to officially become the King of France. The city of Reims, under the control of English France, held the Holy Ampulla, a vial of sacred oil supposedly handed directly from God to Clovis, one of the founders of the Frankish state. St. Denis, another city controlled by the Brits, was home to the traditional French crown. Henry had made a new double crown to symbolize the merger. St. Denis also held the sword of Charlemagne, another key ingredient to the legitimate crowning of a monarch, 
The path opened in June of 1422, when King Henry, at age 36, and seemingly in the prime of his life, had become waylaid with dysentery while on his way to relieve a relatively inconsequential siege. He clung to life for two months before succumbing to the sickness on August 31, 1422. The death of the English king was the clearest sign yet to the Armanacs that God was on their side. Seven weeks later, Charles the Mad, the former king of France, joined Henry in the beyond. Although Henry's will left his two kingdoms to the control of his wife and still in the womb's son, hope returned to the Frenchmen who continued to labor on the behalf of France. The Dauphin must have assumed that winning the throne back from an infant king would be like stealing candy from a baby. The suddenness of change caused English France to split. The younger of Henry's surviving brothers established himself as regent in London, while his elder brother, John, the Duke of Bedford, took the reins in their French territories. It was at this point that Philip, the Duke of Burgundy, began to act aloof. Hatred for Charles, the man who had orchestrated the death of his father, remained, but he also had little love for the English. He began to break away from his alliance with the English, focusing instead on Burgundy territory in the Low Countries, working overtime to expand his influence and strengthen his borders. He had little intention of bowing before a nine-month-old baby. Charles and the Armagnac faction were holding out in Bourges, then a city and now a commune 154 miles directly south of Paris. On October 11th, while holding court in La Rochelle, the floor collapsed. It was an architectural blunder rather than a heavenly sign, but those who wish to see God's hand oftentimes find it. Although dozens died and hundreds were injured, Charles managed to survive the event with little visible damage. The reason had been that he had been seated against a weight-bearing wall. While the hundreds who had packed the center of the room in an attempt to see the dolphin suffered the most. The prince believed that he had been saved for a higher purpose, a purpose which he had already committed his life to, regaining his birthright. In fact, the only real change that came about because of the event was that the Armanacs altered their house's seal, adopting the white cross emblem of St. Michael the Archangel who had a religious order that resided within the city of La Rochelle. St. Michael is quite the figure to choose to march for. Appearing in the Old Testament, the Jewish archangel is depicted as crossing swords with Satan himself. This spiritual warrior is the most visible figure in the Torah, in the battle of good versus evil. The New Testament names him as well, identifying him as a champion of justice, a healer of the sick, and he remains, in their own eyes, the guardian of the Catholic Church. And for the science fiction fantasy-loving individuals out there, 
St. Michael becomes even cooler for the depiction of him fighting dragons in the sky in the revelations of St. John the Divine. Art that was widely disseminated from the Reformation even shows St. Michael the Archangel transforming into a dragon. I don't recall any of this stuff from my religious instruction as a child. Perhaps I would have paid more attention if they had started with the dragons rather than the boring concept of nothingness. The Catholic Church still actively uses the prayer that Charles swaddled his God-given mission in. Here's how it goes. Blessed Michael, Archangel, defend us in the hour of conflict. Be our safeguard against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God restrain him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust Satan down to hell and with him those other wicked spirits who wander through the world for the ruin of souls. Amen. You can see why the Dolphin might be inclined to adopt Michael as his patron saint. His entire life had become consumed with war, one which his side was clearly losing, physically, mentally, and legally. He believed, however, that good, with a capital G, like the good that comes directly from God's will, was on his side. He needed to be defended at this moment, at this hour. His people were becoming ensnared by the English. For them, life beneath the despotic rule of an infant didn't seem that much different than previous regimes. With time, they likely would even accept the legitimacy of this child that had been born to a mother descended from the royal French line. Although Charles was continuously trying, he needed help. Perhaps God's help in removing the British once and for all from God's kingdom of France. A kingdom that believed it had been blessed slash chosen by God since its founding under Clovis, an expansion beneath the watchful gaze of Charlemagne. He turned to another saint for the naming of his son, and if he ever regained the throne, his heir naming him Louis after the patron saint of France. But victory still remained dependent upon the Scots, and that was a dicey proposition. John Stuart had just arrived with somewhere between seven to 8,000 reinforcements, double the size of the initial force which had been able to momentarily reclaim Normandy. During the recruitment drive, Stuart may have exaggerated the plunder that his first excursion had netted him. Money's pretty important to the Scottish people, so much that they have a number of proverbs regarding it, such as the saying that money is flat and was meant to be piled up. The tale of riches that Stuart spun drew forth a Scottish legend to the shores of France. Archibald, the Earl of Douglas, was a veteran's veteran, having already lost one of his eyes as well as one of his testicles in prior combat. While I'm sure he enjoyed the chance to kill the English, he came out of retirement for just one reason, and it involved the opportunity to stack loads of money. Assuming that victory would pay for itself, after all, the Hundred Years' War was already in its 85th year, the Dolphin gifted Archibald the Royal Duchy of Touraine and named the veteran his Lieutenant General. Archibald began his fight against the English by first waging war against Charles's treasury. Proving the Scottish proverb correct 
that one should never marry for money as you can borrow it cheaper. His troops made little effort to strategize against the enemy and instead began to terrorize the French countryside, including parts which were already under the control of the Armanacs. Charles thankfully retained enough coin to hire another force of outsiders in the form of 2,000 heavily armored Lombard cavalry from Milan. Finally, now in 1424, Charles had an army that he believed could repel the English from the continental shores. After all, there was no foot soldier more vicious than the Scots in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Their archers could keep the English longbowmen at bay, and the Lombard armor would ensure that Charles's cavalry would be invulnerable to British arrows and halberds. They chose Vernuel in Normandy as the grounds to begin their extermination of the English. The plan started perfectly well, due to clever subterfuge. Scotsmen that spoke passable English were taken from the Armanac's ranks. From there, they had their hands and feet bound before being splattered with blood and tied to horses as though they were prisoners from a great battle. Once within sight of the walls, the fake prisoners shouted out that the English had been slaughtered nearby in Irvy. The French were inbound, and there was no aid coming. For their acting, the Scots received real blows from their quote-unquote captors in front of the townsmen. Amazingly, it worked, and Vernuel opened the gates to let the Armanacs through. Once in, they had three days to set up an ambush determined to finally give the enemy its own Agincourt. Believing, as Napoleon later would, that God is on the side of the heavier battalions, the French and Scots outnumbered their enemy by a scale of two to one. The Lombard charge did the trick, and it appeared to be a rout from the outset, so much so that the Scottish forces broke off and began to loot the English baggage train. But it truly is as the Scottish proverb recalls, for a fool may earn money, but it takes a wise man to keep it. As the dust settled from the cavalry charge, the British forces reformed ranks. The English archers ditched their longbows and grabbed their daggers and axes to join the melee that had been ongoing for at least 45 minutes by this point. Soon the French line broke and the rout had indeed begun. 6,000 of the Armanac forces were killed, compared to just 1,600 English. The Duke of Bedford, the infant king's uncle and regent in charge of France, claimed that a mere two of his men-at-arms and a very few archers were lost. As many members of the French nobility were captured as had been at the disastrous Battle of Agincourt, the first of the many times that God had shown his favor upon the English in this never-ending war. The battle consolidated British rule in Normandy and represented the last act that the Scots would play in the wars of France, as John Stuart and Archibald were both hacked to pieces on the killing fields in Vernuel. The Duke of Bedford returned to Paris proclaiming news of the victory to a crowd that reacted as enthusiastically to him as if he had been God himself, while Charles limped back to his southern hideaway. France again became a state with two capitals, 
as the Duke of Bedford continued to govern from the Louvre Fortress in Paris, while Charles held court in Bourges. Castro explains that, in theory, each kingdom of France was dedicated to the annihilation of the other. In practice, they were locked in a deathly embrace, a stalemate sustained by devastation and bloodshed. At that time, a Parisian chronicler wrote in 1423, the English would sometimes take a fortress from the Armanacs in the morning and lose two in the evening. So this war, a curse of God, went on. Though the Kingdom of the North had been strengthened by victory at Bernoulli, the English forces were pushing southward from Normandy into Marne and Anjou. Neither side had yet shown themselves capable of making a decisive move across the great natural boundary of the River Loire, which now in effect divided the Armagnac Kingdom of the South from English France to the north and its ally, the Duchy of Burgundy, to the east. The stalemate was so locked in place that the Burgundies reached out to the Armanacs in an attempt to reach a peace agreement, as the Duke's former British allies were now threatening to encroach upon his territory in order to deal with France's neighbors in Hainault. The two sides reached a ceasefire agreement that saw Philip acknowledge Charles' claim to the throne. With agreement in hand, Philip's next dealt with the threat presented by the Regent of London, the Duke of Gloucester. Chivalry allowed Philip to retain control of Hainault. The Duke arrived with an army only to be challenged to a one-on-one -on -one duel. Because the challenge was made in public, the English lord was unable to refuse while simultaneously retaining his honor. The two set a date for the duel, during which time Philip took sword fighting lessons and spent $14,000 on a new suit of the most advanced armor Europe had to offer. The Duke of Gloucester left his wife, who was the connection to Honault in the first place. He took a French mistress back with him to England, never to return to the mainland or to his wife. It is around this time that an important new player makes an appearance in our story. Richemont, the Earl of English Richmond, had grown up in France despite the fact that his mother had married the British King Henry IV. He has been absent from this story because he was captured at the Battle of Agincourt and had only just now reached an agreement to go on parole, conditioned on the fact that he did nothing against the interests of English France. Almost immediately in 1425, he joined Charles and was named to the post of military leader of Armagnac, France, the position that the Scotsman John Stuart had recently held. Charles's position was further strengthened by the power of his mother-in-law, the Dowager Yolande. In addition to bankrolling the entire operation, Yolande furthered the Dauphin's belief in the Christian mystic arts. She'd become open to the concept of visions from God when her own mother began to interact with a peasant woman who claimed to receive visions from God. The woman had two divinations that were known to historians. First, a directive to reform the church in order to end the papal schism, and another that foretold of a burning wheel bearing thousands of swords and arrows tumbling towards earth at breakneck speed. 
1425, Yolande encountered a mystic of her own. Jeanne-Marie de Mal was a noblewoman who had given up the entirety of her wealth upon the death of her husband. The Dowager introduced her to the king, with whom she had at least two private meetings. Showcasing again how willing Charles was to believe anything that resembled an indication that God remained on his side. For the better part of the next three years, Richemont consolidated power by using force against his internal rivals rather than English France. For that, he would earn the wrath of Charles. Yolande continued to feed Charles funds and prophecy in order to keep his cause moving forward. For that, her name would be gifted in honor to one of Charles's daughters. Despite the rising challenge, the Duke of Bedford continued to hesitate in an effort to safely stay in power, content with Paris and Normandy. For this, he would lose the war. The end for Bedford and English France began in 1428, with a decision that the Duke, the acting regent of English France, was adamantly against. He was outvoted by the War Council regarding the taking of the city of Orleans which resided on the English side of the boundary of the Loire River. In English hands, the city could be a staging ground for troops to invade southern Armagnac, France. Despite its obvious importance, Charles had organized no defense for Orleans. This was because chivalry and honor should have kept it sacrosanct, as the Duke of Orleans had been previously captured, and the laws of war dictated that a lord's kingdom was off-limits, so that the nobility would remain able to raise a ransom from his vassals. This fact alone should prove that money was the main casus belli of medieval warfare. Even without Charles's prioritization of the city in his defense plans, the city of Orleans was a force to be reckoned with. Castor describes the city as consisting of more than 30 watchtowers studying the ancient walls that surrounded Orleans on the north side of the Loire. A massive stone bridge, more than 200 years old, reached from the town's great gate to an island in the river, and then on a span of 19 arches in total to a fortified tower known as the Torlise, from which a wooden bridge gave access to the river's southern bank. The English took more than a dozen nearby towns before turning their attention to the main prize. For twelve days, Orleans was bombarded, after which they blew their own bridges to prevent a hostile crossing. The death of their commander forced a change of plans, and the English settled in for what appeared to be a long siege in the hope that hunger, disease, and despair would do their work for them. Charles was now 26 years old, and it was clear at this point that his expensive armor was only for show. Charles was now 26 years old, and it was clear at this point that his expensive armor was only for show. There was no expectation for the Dauphin to rally the troops to break the siege of Orleans. There was only slightly more hope that Richemont, the king's lead general, would risk violating his terms of parole 
for what appeared to be a lost cause. The task fell to a man known by the elegant moniker of the Bastard of Orleans, or Jean de Dumois, as his mother likely referred to him. The nickname was said to be complimentary, identifying him as a cousin to the king. Riding with his forces to Orleans, he came to the conclusion that his greatest hope was to besiege the besiegers. He first targeted their supply line in a surprise attack, the results of which were quite shocking to all those that watched, as the bastard's army was nearly annihilated. In the surprise assault, the Armanac aggressors lost 400 soldiers. The butcher's bill was not balanced, as those 400 lives had been spent killing just four Englishmen. Castor describes the effects of the battle, claiming that the victory was remarkable. It mattered to the hungry English soldiers at Orleans who would eat well that Lent. And it matters that God had smiled on troops loyal to Henry, the true king of France. All the same, this triumph of English archers against overwhelming odds did not resonate with the grandeur of Argicourt, nor even the second Argicourt at Vernoul. Still, it had become clear to Charles and his council that it was time to begin to discuss abandoning France once and for all. It was eleven days into these discussions that Joan rode into camp, surrounded by six guards of honor. She let all who would listen know that she was on a mission from God. Her arrival alone bespoke of miracles. Thus, we will go into the details of how she managed to first convince six travelers that she was sent by God, as well as then gaining an audience with the Dauphin in the midst of war, and then how she managed to convince him and all his advisors that he should hand over control of the Dauphin's armies in order to lead them in battle on the fields of Orleans. But for now, just accept the fact that this 16-year-old girl managed to do all three. She was named as a captain and handed control of thousands of troops, despite the fact that she had never seen battle nor received any formal training regarding military strategy. She was an illiterate daughter of rural sheep farmers. The how she managed all of this defies every reasonable thought, thus requiring more time than this episode has left. Charles was desperate and in need of a miracle. Although no one in his court would describe the Dauphin's decision to arm Joan as a roll of the dice, it was indeed the decision of a desperate man down to his last chip on the table. After the prince had become convinced to take this course of action, his master armorers fitted Joan with the best armor available for the times. She was given three weeks to arrive at Orleans, during which time she practiced balancing her plate armor while riding, swinging a sword, and holding a lance with her banner. Anyone who watched her put in the work understood immediately that Joan had no interest in being used as a prop. She truly believed that God sent her first and foremost to end the siege of Orleans, and she intended to do so by leading from the front. Joan did get a little bit lucky on her way to the siege. 
Philip of Burgundy abandoned the siege before her arrival over disagreements about how the wealth of Orleans would be divided. Four days later, her forces began to march 35 miles from Blois to Orleans. It was at this point that she issued a challenge to the Duke of Bedford, the boy king Henry, and all English residing in France. Illiterate as she was, she dictated a statement that clearly stated that she, Joan the Maid, an allusion to the Virgin Mary, mother of Jesus, was sent by God to end the siege of Orleans and see that Charles was successfully crowned the rightful King of France in Reims. She ordered all English to immediately abandon France or face death at her hands in the name of Jesus and Mary. On April 25th, the maid slept in her armor. On the 26th, she rode to battle. Her appearance at Orleans was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. Castor describes it for us, writing that her military escort looked for all the world like a religious procession. From out of the forest on the southern side of the lore walked priests, carrying a banner of the crucifixion and singing the hymn Vendi Creator Spiritus, or Come Holy Spirit. Only then came the men-at-arms with the carts behind and riding among them, her fine armor gleaming in the April sun, was the girl. A mere few weeks on the road displayed the girl's innate charisma. She, a girl, a young teenage girl at that, was leading men during an era in which the patriarchy was at the peak of its power. Despite the optics, she immediately seemed to bend others to her will. The Duke of Alencon was one such officer. A veteran of Vernoul at the age of 22, the Duke had sworn off the war only to be dragged back in because of the oddity that was Joan. Expecting to see a freak show, he instead marveled at how she handled a lance and immediately gifted her a prized horse and signed up to be one of her lieutenants. After she took command, her first actions were to prohibit her troops from committing any sin, particularly murder, rape, or pillaging, as well as any violence against anyone who accepted the justness of her cause. By all written accounts, her men immediately abided by her tightening of expectations. Her first target at Orleans was on the lone English fortification to the east of the gates. At this junction, the English defenses were so thin that they were described as almost negligible. Still, it was Joan's first sight of battle, and the quick victory, involving only several dead on either side, was further proof that she wasn't going to be a complete disaster as captain. Remember that the last leader had sacrificed 400 in order to kill four. In contrast, the maid's forces had captured an English standard and had managed to slip past the British blockade in just a few hours after their arrival. Her entrance into Orleans is described by Castor as inducing a state of delirium. The rumors of this god-sent maid had traveled faster than her army. Her appearance within the gates after months of a grueling siege brought immediate hope to the people of Orleans. She personally received reports on the city's supplies and its fortifications. 
Her lieutenants then counseled her to the best of their ability. The loudest voice in the room was that of La Hire, a capable veteran French commander. He argued for a time-consuming hit-and-run raids of the British, slowly sapping their strength in order to convince them to abandon their conquest of Orleans. The plan was one designed out of necessity, for the troops that Joan had traveled with had been sent back to Charles by a commander that outranked her. The numbers were thus against her, and she found herself besieged within the very walls that she had promised to free. But Joan wasn't one to be deterred, even by reality. Lahire's plan was a sound one, but she had promised a war, not a skirmish. She again issued an ultimatum to the British forces outside the gates. Her enemies responded that Joan was nothing but a trollop who should go back to herding cattle, telling her that they would see her burnt at the stake. Upon hearing the response, Joan reacted with rage, climbing the fortifications to shout her fury at the English, demanding at the top of her lungs that they surrender to God. The Bastard of Orleans took this moment to sneak out of the walls in a desperate attempt to catch up to the soldiers that Joan had originally led to Orleans in what was likely a fruitless attempt to turn them back around once more. He managed this task two days later, having convinced the French overlords that Joan could not be judged rightly or falsely from God if she wasn't granted the tools that she needed to have a chance at succeeding. With her troops back under her command, Joan could put her plan into action. I will describe her tactics in as much detail as Joan herself did. Attack. That was it. Attack. As she claimed God had sent her, all that needed to be done was to attack and believe. Now put yourself in the shoes of a French soldier at this point. They had been 100% convinced that they would dominate the field at Argicourt. They had been doubly sure that with double the soldiers and elite mercenaries from Scotland and Milan, the best horse, men, and armor that money could buy would be enough at Vernoul. They were sure of themselves when a few weeks earlier they had launched a surprise attack against a supply train that was only guarded by archers. Now a 16-year-old girl, who had only seen one small skirmish that had resulted in several deaths on both sides, presented her war plan, devised after a mere two days of studying the troop placements and fortifications of Orleans, as just attack and let God do the rest. She ordered her troops to first attack the Bastille of St. Luke, an isolated fortification on the eastern side of the city, which made it difficult to move troops and supplies into the city past the British blockade. It took three hours of close quarters fighting as well as the mobilization of French reserve forces to take and burn the obstacle to the ground. That night, she was said to have been in a somber mood eating sparingly after having seen a true battle up close for the very first time. 
The next morning, she dictated one last warning to her enemies, before next utilizing her attack strategy on the only fortification standing on the southern bank of the river. To the surprise of her French forces, they found it abandoned, as the British had constricted their defense in a sign that they were beginning to take the Armanac Whore, as they referred to her, seriously. On the third day, she ordered an attack on the defenses around Augustine. Inspired by the maid, hundreds of Orleans citizens appeared ready with any weapon they could find in order to join her cause. The professionals in the army warned her against accepting such help, as they fully expected the rabble to cause more chaos than aid. But Joan overruled them. After all, it wasn't as though she had any more military experience than these people. To all of those assembled, she made it abundantly clear that she would accept any assistance from anyone willing to join her righteous cause. At this point, the fighting boiled down to strength against strength. Joan and her forces threw everything at a fortification known as the Augustine. It took all day, but her forces were victorious. By sundown, every Englishman was either Joan's prisoner or dead. The maid was said to be instrumental in the victory. Early in the conquest, the French had been pushed back, dragging Joan back with them. The sight of the so-called Armanac witch on the run was enough for the British to forget their training and they burst out of formation in pursuit. According to credible eyewitness accounts, Joan and Joan alone turned to face the charging column of death. Raising her holy standard and crying out, Au nom de Dieu, in the name of God. The shocking sight must have been the equivalent of Gandalf standing alone on a bridge demanding that you shall not pass. For the British halted their advance, and the fleeing French troops immediately rallied to Joan's banner and subsequent victory at Augustine. Having won three battles in three consecutive days would cause most commanders to stop and reassess the situation as it might call for new tactics. Additionally, Joan had been wounded after stepping on a spike the prior day. Common sense dictated that she would at least rest for one day. But Joan was not most commanders, nor did she claim to rely on common sense. For the will of God to a religious zealot can never be considered common. On the fourth day of fighting, she belted out her familiar orders for the day. Attack. This time, it was the Torles Complex, in which the remaining 800 English troops were holed up in a defensive bulwark. At daybreak, the troops advanced and the English bombarded them with every gun, crossbow, and projectile that they had remaining in their sizable arsenal. The final battle for Orleans was upon them. Castor describes the battle as lasting for hours as though an irresistible force had met an immovable object. As exhaustion began to set in, Joan, the 16-year-old girl who a week prior had never seen a battle, perhaps never even a fight, threw herself towards the front, brandishing her standard for all to see and urging her men to continue pushing forward. It was at this point that she was hit by an arrow right between her neck and shoulder. 
The British marksman had finally managed to hit an exposed portion of her armor. The maid was down. The French began to falter at the sight of their talisman faltering. They had come to believe over the course of the past week that she indeed had some supernatural foresight. But if she could be killed, then everything else that they had been told by her was a lie. The bastard of Orleans, a true believer in Joan from the get-go, prepared to sound the retreat in defeat, but was stopped by Joan telling him that it was merely a flesh wound, as if she was indeed the great black knight from Monty Python who always triumphs. Not only did she get up, she yelled and charged directly into the defensive ditch, placing herself in the most vulnerable of all locations on the battlefield, brandishing her standard in order to call all of her opponent's attention to her. Again, the French soldiers rallied. Not only that, the city's militia, whom the experienced soldiers had sought to leave behind, emerged from behind carrying great planks of wood to bridge the watery gaps that the English had carefully created the day before. It was at this moment that the English captain, Sir William Glassdale, a man of enough conflicts to have previously earned his knighthood, slipped and fell fully armored from the ramparts into the river. His death was taken by his men as a certainty. Panic spread, and by the time that the sun set on Orleans, the British had been broken. The next morning, the last of the British forces emerged on the battlefield directly across from the city of Orleans. For the first time, Joan ordered her troops to stand in defense, ordering that fighting should only occur if her men were first provoked. The two armies stared at each other for an hour before the British lost their nerve and sounded the retreat, confident that they could no longer hold on to their remaining fortifications. The siege of Orleans was over. In a mere four days, the maid had freed a city which had been besieged for more than six months. She had informed them that she had been sent from God, that he had commanded her to take control of the French forces and to use them to end the siege of Orleans. Most importantly, she had been proven correct. The news reverberated around the known world, with the Bishop of Cahors in Rome hurriedly adding a new chapter to his work, titled A Brief History of the World, describing the maid named Joan who, quote, accomplishes actions which appear more divine than human. But Orleans was just the first of two promises made by the maid. Joan had also informed the Armagnac court that she would see Charles the Dauphin become Charles VII, the properly anointed king of France. Our next episode will dig deeper into Joan's past, revealing how she managed to convince the Dolphin to hand over control of part of his army, as well as going further into her story to restore France.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look at the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.